Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, a much-anticipated biography of Andy Warhol. My guest is Blake Gopnik, the former art critic at the Washington Post and at Toronto's Globe and Mail. His book, Warhol, is out this week from Echo, a HarperCollins imprint. The book is relentlessly detailed, it's 976 pages long, and includes fascinating passages on the Pittsburgh of Warhol's youth and college years, and New York's late 1940s and 1950s gay scene. Heck, if Warhol wasn't about an artist, his work, his friendships, lovers, and various bad behaviors, Gopnik's book might be the go-to volume on certain periods of Pittsburgh and New York history. Before we get to this week's show, earlier this week we pushed what might be our last pandemic bonus episode to your podcatchers. It features the widely admired directors of two art museums that are insistently unreliant on tourism revenue for operations. Those directors are Sabina Ekman of the Kemper at Washington University in St. Louis and Rebecca Rabinow of the Menil Collection in Houston. Please remember to rate and review us, five stars please, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download the show. It makes a huge difference in helping new people find the program, our guests, and their work. Thanks very much. Blake Gopnik, after the break. Did you know that you can explore the Hammer Museum's exhibitions and programs from the comfort of your home? Watch hundreds of videos from an extraordinary array of programs, from political forums and panels to artist talks and literary readings. Or browse the Hammer's digital archives for images, essays, and research materials related to exhibitions and collections. Visit hammer.ucla.edu for details. Hammer Museum, free for good. Experience Barry X. Ball remaking sculpture at the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas through April 19th. The artist Barry X. Ball reinvents traditional sculptural formats and existing art historical landmarks using state-of-the-art 3D scanning technology, computer-aided modeling software, and CNC milling machines in combination with centuries-old craft techniques requiring thousands of hours of detailed handwork. Barry X. Ball remaking sculpture is the artist's first major U.S. museum survey. Learn more and plan a visit at nashersculpturecenter.org. And we're back. Blake Gopnik, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks so much, Tyler. Can't wait to talk to you. How can it be that Andy Warhol was born both in a Pittsburgh steel mill and was also a scion of the aristocratic Von Warhol clan. And what does that he claimed both tell us about his origin story? Of course, he didn't just claim those two facts. He, he also claimed wildly different dates for his birth, and he claimed to be born in 10 different places around the United States. He never claimed to be born in Paris, as far as I know, but that's about the only place he didn't claim to be born. The falsehoods in the Warhol story are in a sense more important than the truths, or just as important, because they tell you how keen he was to fabricate not just a new Warhol, because we all do that, right? We all self-fabricate, but to actually prevent there being any kind of stable, stable Andy Warhol for us to grab hold of. And that I think is, I actually think that's at the heart of all of the art he did, that desire for instability. And as far as I'm concerned, that's sort of central to the whole modernist project. In my biography of Warhol, I bill him as a kind of quintessential modernist artist, desperate to make it new at every moment. And making himself new every single day and in every interview is part of that, as far as I'm concerned. 
the Von Warhol clan story is is probably revealing of something at, at Warhol's core also. How did that particular fib come about? This gets you to the to the sort of the the level of his fibbing. We don't even know if that was his fib or if one of his many amanuenses, you know, contributed that little item to who's who. I think it was who's who in the East or who's who in America in the 60s. So we don't even know if it's his lie or someone else's lie. He he trained other people to lie for him. He was so keen to destabilize things. So I don't know if that actually was his bit of snobbery or if it was one of his assistants who wanted him to be snobbier than he actually was, but either is perfectly possible. And as a biographer, it sets you in a really weird position because the assumption for all biographers is that you go to the horse's mouth, first of all, right? That your best source is the person that you're writing about and then you've got all these other people saying things as well. But with Warhol, it's exactly the opposite. He is the least reliable source about his own life. It's more likely to be the case that he's lying about something than that he's telling the truth. He certainly preferred obfuscation to clarity. So you actually have to take anything he says, all of his famous bon mots, you have to take them with a grain of salt and wonder if he meant what he said or if he meant exactly the opposite of what he said. We'll come to a couple of those later on, I think. So to be clear, to, to, to set the record straight, as it were, Andy grew up in a, a laboring class family in Pittsburgh, but not in a steel, steel mill. I mean, he, didn't, he wasn't born in a steel mill and his father didn't work in a steel mill. How did his mother try to keep Andy and his brothers busy around the house, going so far as to reward them for success with candy bars? Well, that's one of the amazing things I discovered in looking into Warhol's youth is how early he got a kind of training in in art for sure, because his mother got him and his brother to do, you know, the typical kind of drawings that you get a kid to do. But I think it was more than that. His mother turns out to be one of the most interesting figures in his life and in his career, frankly. I think that she was a true a true bohemian at heart. I mean, she grew up in the poorest of, of villages in what's now Slovakia. But it's clear when you talk to people about her youth and her life that she was a kind of avant-gardist, that she was a deeply cultural figure who was interested in music, who was interested in painting as well. And that that avant-gardist model that Warhol believed in so strongly, I think he got quite literally with his mother's milk that he learned to be an artist or what it means to be an artist in a kind of profound sense from his deeply eccentric mother. And that that was really central in turning him, him into the artist he was. So yeah, she trained him in all sorts of, I mean, fairly trivial kind of art making, you know, drawing butterflies and drawing, drawing angels, those kind of things. But was really, I think, important in a sort of larger spiritual sense for him. Warhol grows up as a young person in Pittsburgh and sticks around for for college. How and where did he encounter Bauhaus ideas in Pittsburgh? And I guess as a corollary to that, how did it come to be that in the late 40s and early 50s, there was a place in Pittsburgh you could go to receive Bauhaus ideas? Yeah, one of the most exciting things for me in researching my book was figuring out just what a great education Warhol had really from his early teen years right through to graduating from college. You know, we we still have this image. I even have this image of Warhol as a kind of goofy character, maybe self-taught, but but a kind of 
at least a faux naïf, if not a real naïf, but he was actually an incredible sophisticate. And that started already in his teens because there was this crazy gallery in, in Pittsburgh that officially was a commercial gallery, but barely ever sold a thing, run by a wealthy heiress, I guess you'd call her, called Elizabeth Rockwell. It's called Outlines Gallery and lasted for only six years, but it was actually one of the most exciting, cutting-edge spaces in all of North America, it turns out. Their scrapbooks have survived, and they showed everyone you can name, Marcel Duchamp, Calder Circus. It looks as though that was the first place Calder ever showed his circus. Name a famous, important artist, and, and they were there. I mean, they had Joseph Campbell lecturing on, on James Joyce. It was just the most amazing space, and Warhol was there. We know that Warhol went there with some of his buddies in college, but even before college. So he got this unbelievable education. It was kind of mini MoMA. They borrowed a lot of films from MoMA and showed those. Really radical avant-garde films. In fact, some films went to them first before MoMA even got their hands on them. Maya Darren, for instance, was a pal of Elizabeth Rockwell. So not only did Andy Warhol see important plastic arts at Outlines Gallery, but he also saw the latest in film and learned that even Hollywood films should count as important visual culture and even avant-garde visual culture. So, so many of the things that are kind of trademarks of Warhol's thinking as a pop artist actually get started already when he's going to this Outlines Gallery. And then he goes to college at Carnegie Institute of Technology, now Carnegie Mellon University, in their art department, which for those particular years was just the most amazing place. I mean, they were, the students and the teachers were deeply interested in Marcel Duchamp. The students prepared the piano in the art department and turned it into a John Cage piano. Everything you could want from an avant-garde education at that moment in the late 40s, you got in that particular art school. And something I think especially important for Warhol, there was a little circle of out or relatively out or sometimes closeted gay professors at just the time he was there. So the link between avant-gardism and queer culture was formed, I think, at that moment at, at the Carnegie Institute of Technology. I found lecture notes by some of his professors, especially a guy called Balcom Green, who was a superstar painter at that time, but uh, has sort of faded completely from view now. And it's just the most amazing lecture notes you could imagine. If you wanted to turn out an Andy Warhol, you would simply give these lectures that he heard. I think Balcom Green was the husband of Gertrude Green, who was one of the early advocates of abstraction and the founder of what, the Abstract Artists Association in New York? He was one of them, he as well. And Gertrude went by the name Peter. So there was some weird gender bending going on in that. And one of the things, I mean, Balcom Green was written up like crazy at the time. Balcom Green was actually declared, one of his paintings was declared one of the greatest paintings of the 20th century. One of the 10 greatest paintings, I think, of the 20th century in some survey in 1950, when the century, I think, was only halfway through. But one of the things about Balcom Green that everyone said is that he was an incredible self-creator, that the artist persona was as important to him as the actual objects an artist, an artist made. And he said so at the time. So Warhol learned about self-creation at Balcom Green's knee. I got the name of the organization wrong. It was called American Abstract Artists. So did Bauhaus ideas get to Pittsburgh the way they got to so many other places in the United States in the 1940s? German emigres came over and found jobs at Carnegie Tech, or was it less direct than that? There was a little bit of that, and a lot of the German emigres 
went through Pittsburgh at various times, especially because the Carnegie, what's now called the Carnegie International, during the war years, it was called the Carnegie Annual, featured a lot of those artists. And if it didn't feature them in the actual art that was shown, they were judges, they were on the juries for it. So Pittsburgh was a real hub, mostly because of the Carnegie Institute and its art museum, and then the, the international that they held all the time, uh, was a real hub for contemporary art. So again, Warhol got to see some of the most exciting contemporary art in those internationals. I mean, for instance, MoMA toured Picasso's Guernica to Pittsburgh. So Warhol got to see Guernica and in the process got to see the most important work by the man you could say was Warhol's most important rival. And that's not unusual for Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh really was a half decent place to look at art, or more than half decent. All sorts of really interesting artists were shown there. Daumier, there was a big Daumier show. There was one of the first ever shows of Russian icons, which I think are the source of the few paintings Warhol did of Maryland with a gold background. One of the myths that I, I tried to destroy in my book, but it seems undestroyable, is that Warhol grew up looking at altar screen, uh, an iconostasis of golden icons, because that's what's there now in his church. But I found photographs of the church in the 40s, and they were actually kind of Renaissance-style portraits of saints that were up there. So the whole notion that Warhol learned about the Byzantine look from his childhood church just isn't true. But despite having published the book, despite having written endless blog posts about how this myth isn't true, it still turns up at least once a week, someone says, even major curators say, you know, Warhol's gold ground Maryland's depend on his exposure to golden icons when he was in church as a little boy. No, I think it depends on him having seen a show of Russian icons presented as art. And that's a crucial thing for me, presented as art at the Carnegie Institute's Art Museum. One of the amazing things, Tyler, about Outlines Gallery in Pittsburgh is that they actually brought Merce Cunningham and John Cage to do a residency when Warhol was a teenager. It was one of their first appearances as a creative couple, but more importantly, as an amorous couple, and they stayed in an apartment together. And it's almost impossible not to think that Warhol understood what was going on. Warhol, a young man, almost certainly just coming to grips with his own homosexuality, that he didn't realize that there was this amazing couple, the most important avant-garde couple you could argue, in America at the time, and that they were also an amorous couple, I think must have meant a tremendous amount to him. And he always said that John Cage was possibly the most important influence on him as an artist. And of course, he actually worked with, with Merce Cunningham a couple of times. One other Pittsburgher was a key figure in Warhol's transition from Pittsburgher to New Yorker. They both went to New York together. This guy was an army vet. He had served in both the U.S. and Italy and was at Carnegie Tech on the GI Bill. Who was he, and was he more important to Warhol as a, a maker or, or just as a, a pal, social glue, fellow traveler? Well, we're talking about Philip Perlstein, who's still going strong at 95 years old, still painting up a storm, famous, funnily enough, for his high realist uh, figuration, which, of course, is not something Warhol ever engaged in at all. But he was Warhol's, one of Warhol's closest pals at Carnegie Tech. There was actually a little circle of them who rented a building called The Barn, rented it from their college, and spent a summer just making art. And they were really committed to modernist avant-gardism. And that, I think, is the kind of a central force in Warhol's education. It wasn't that Philip Perlstein did particular things that influenced Andy Warhol, although he did actually make some proto-pop paintings when they were first living together in New York, 
a Superman, a dollar sign, which he then went on and destroyed in some cases because his friends all told Philip Perlstein, no, those are no good. Get rid of them. This is the moment for abstraction. So he destroyed his proto-pop pictures exactly 10 years before pop came on the scene officially. So that could have been a direct influence on Warhol, almost certainly was. But I think it was the fact of having a circle of fellow travelers. Now, Philip Perlstein wasn't gay. So that, that side of Andy's culture, as Philip himself has said, was sort of closed to him. But there was another member of their circle called George Clauber who was really important to Warhol, who Warhol said introduced him to the gay scene in New York. And he was more advanced as an artist, as a thinker, as a reader than anyone else in the circle at Carnegie Tech. So he was really important. And I think has been sort of under, underrated as one of the influences on Warhol, both culturally and sexually and artistically. I think it's pretty well known that when Warhol gets to New York, he works as a freelancer, mostly, in commercial illustration. Can you give us an idea of that world and how there were kind of tiers or levels of, of the thing and where Warhol worked his way into? Well, the amazing thing about Warhol is he arrives in New York. He's a wet behind the ears like you wouldn't believe. He arrives with his good friend, Philip Perlstein, who's more sophisticated and a much more polished artist. But it's Andy Warhol who gets immediately gets uh, pretty major contracts in good magazines. He gets a contract for Glamour within the first weeks of being in, in New York. So he has this, well, faux naive style, quite a girlish style, which is really important for what's going on in illustration at that moment in New York. There's all of this publishing that's specifically appealing to women, but all of the illustrators are men. And you could say, to use a, a kind of stereotype, they had a, a more manly style, whereas Warhol was really able to channel the girlish. And that was really important in him getting all of these contracts. He really had a face style, both personally, but especially in his work. So he immediately found, found work. Now, it's really important to say that he was not, as is so often said, a genius illustrator, you know, the most famous illustrator in New York at the time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. No, he was just a really talented professional, unusually talented young kid who pretty soon came to specialize in shoes. So it's certainly safe to say that he was the leading shoe illustrator in New York, but I'm not sure that that ranks at the very top of all possible commercial illustration. I mean, someone like Ben Sean, now that, he was a, a recognized genius who crossed over between fine art and illustration in just the way Warhol had been taught to do because that was the Bauhaus way of doing things. Saul Steinberg was also a superstar in that crossover between illustration and fine art. Warhol wasn't that. He tried to cross over. He had lots and lots of shows, almost one a year of fine art shows in the 50s, but they almost all were more or less explicitly gay-themed, and that was just intolerable in Eisenhower America, so he, he got no exposure. He often showed in galleries that specifically specialized, at least quietly specialized in gay artists and, and art with some kind of a queer theme. And the critics found it that really hard to take. So he had a hard time as kind of out gay artist, uh, making it big in the art world. But in the world of illustration, he did quite well. And in window dressing, especially, I mean, the world of window dressing was almost exclusively a gay enclave. It's worth mentioning that Robert Rauschenberg got to window dressing before before Andy did, so did Ray Johnson. Or no, actually, Ray Johnson got 
his introduction when addressing from Andy. But a lot of the gay artists in New York, Jasper Johns as well, found a home in the windows, especially of Bonwit Teller Department Store, which was run by a kind of genius called Gene Moore, who realized there were all these talented artists out there in a moment before there was really any art market to speak of that he could dragoon into doing windows for Bonwit Teller. And a surprising number of photographs have survived of those windows. And they're just extraordinary. Warhols are not the best of them, I hate to say. Or rather, there may be the best examples of window dressing, that is, of the commercial art of window dressing, but it's not where the best fine art was shown. The windows by Robert Rauschenberg and Jasper Johns in both 56 and 57 are amazing. I mean, one of the very first combines is shown in the window at Bonwit Tellers. One of the very first Jasper John flags is shown in the windows at Bonwit Teller. Eventually, in April of 61, Warhol finally gets to show some serious contemporary art, his first pop art in the window at Bonwood Tellers, but it takes him a while, a while longer than it did for Jasper or Robert Rauschenberg. There's a long history of art and artists in store windows in America. It, it, it was not new or unique to Warhol's New York. It goes back at least and probably further than this to, to the 1860s in San Francisco, a million miles from New York, especially then. It was pretty common for dry goods merchants to install paintings or famous chromolithographs in their windows as a way to entice people to enter and buy, you know, red beans or whatever. So <laughs> it goes way back. Those stores often sold fine art. I mean, certainly the department stores in New York from early in the century showed fine art and were considered, I mean, Alfred Barr actually, you know, there's a speech by him to the department store owners saying, you guys are one of the best galleries in, in the city. And he wasn't referring to the windows. He was referring to the spaces upstairs as well that actually showed art, you know, for sale, important, serious contemporary art. So it was, uh, there's a great history to be written of art and window dressing, and it hasn't quite been written yet. For instance, a window that Jasper Johns and Robert Rauschenberg and Warhol collaborated on, a giant Warhol shoe that was turned into a prop by Rauschenberg and, and Jasper Johns, which is kind of amazing. And Dayton Hudson, the forerunner of Target, had, uh, did a Johns show in Minneapolis. So, I mean, it... And there is, it sort of exists because there's this amazing guy called Lester Gabba, who at the time was known as the Dean of Window Dressers. And he wrote a couple of books about window dressing and did a weekly column on window dressing. That's how important it was as a phenomenon in the United States. And he's a, he's a fascinating figure. And he may have done one of the very, very first pop art paintings in the 50s or even 40s yet, but I haven't been able to track it down quite perfectly. So we stepped up to the edge of talking about Warhol crossing over into having a bigger presence in the fine art world. How important was it that he was able to make fine art world connections through buying and collecting to his eventual entry into the New York art world? It's certainly true that his first presence in the art world was as a collector, and it wasn't, people often bill it as a kind of manipulative gesture of his. No, he was just a collector. He had some money. He'd always loved contemporary art and taken it very, very seriously from teenage years yet. So when he got came into some money, he was collecting really interesting artists that we've sort of forgotten about, like Chelichev and, and a few others. And for that matter, you know, Magritte, Moreau, et cetera. So he's a real collector. He has a great eye for the avant-garde and goes to the first Rauschenberg and John shows and decides that that's the art he recognizes that that he recognizes that that is the art that he should be buying. So he does buy a great Jasper Johns lithograph and an amazing Jasper Johns drawing as well. So yes, that introduces him to some of the gallery owners, but 
they wouldn't have any interest in him as an artist if he hadn't been making some of the most exciting art in New York at that moment. So that's what did it, of course, was the quality of his art. And not everyone could recognize it as good. It was actually, in a sense, too advanced for someone even like Leo Castelli. It took Leo Castelli's helpers to convince him that he should be interested in Andy Warhol. And it took him a while. Or for that matter, Leo Castelli's wife, Eliana Sonnabend, figured out Warhol's excellence before Leo Castelli actually did. She was actually one of the first Warhol fans. So yeah, he made a mark by making really interesting, important art. And that's what it boils down to. But it didn't hurt that he had at least a little toe in the door because he was a collector of important work. If he'd been a collector of junk, I think no one would have cared about him at all. There are three artists in these years, the late 50s, early 60s, that you write about a good bit as being important to Warhol in, in I think, pretty different ways, and I want to run through each of them. The first one, no matter how much Warhol denied it or denigrated his work, was, was Robert Rauschenberg. How did Warhol come to know Rauschenberg's work? And, and as you write it, it, it sure sounds like Rauschenberg just took up residence in Warhol's head for a while. So what about Rauschenberg's work got into Andy's head in the way that it did? Well, my guess is that the first Rauschenbergs he saw would have been the first Rauschenbergs I think that anyone could have seen, which is those cyanotypes that he did with his then wife, Susan Weil, in the window for Bonnet Teller. I'm tracking down some photographs of them now, but I'm not sure that they actually exist. So that would have been his first contact, I think. And then, of course, Rauschenberg was probably the most exciting artist in post-Abex New York. So Warhol would have kept track of that, would have seen his very first shows where he showed things like, you know, the red paintings or the gold paintings. I mean, in my not so humble opinion, it's those early years. It's the pre-combine years, really, of Rauschenberg that are the most exciting, most conceptual work. And I think that's what touched Warhol most deeply. Then he would have seen some of the very first combines, again, in the window at Bonwit Teller's in 1956. The, the head of window dressing, Gene Moore, decides in January to show the fine artwork of all of the people who'd helped with the actual window dressing. So he showed fine art by Robert Rauschenberg, fine art by Jasper Johns, and fine art by Andy Warhol in a series of windows. I've actually been able to figure out via the negative numbers that these windows were one right next to the other. And the sad thing is that Warhol shows some sort of half adequate drawings, but next door, Robert Rauschenberg is showing one of the first combines. And that clearly must have touched Andy Warhol. The only thing is that I think that Warhol realized that the early Rauschenberg was better than the combine work. I mean, I think the combines are more conservative than the more radical conceptual work early on, the Erased de Kooning, for instance. So I think that that's what Warhol ends up channeling. He realizes that the the sort of mainstream combines are very much of a piece with collage and assemblage. You know, there are things in there that are more holy in his use of Coke bottles, for instance, Rauschenberg's use, I mean. But the, the notion of the ready-made, the presentational quality of Warhol's work, just taking something and not transforming it, that's the crucial move, is not transforming his subject matter. Whereas Rauschenberg, was committed to the old-fashioned by then idea of transforming the subject matter, turning it into art. What Warhol wanted to do was quite explicitly not go arty on his material, try to make it not look like art. And that's what he was attacked for viciously for the first few years. We forget the extent to which Warhol's art was really seen essentially as non-art at first. It wasn't the sort of easygoing, cute, 
fun, poppy stuff that it came to be fairly quickly, within a year or two. In its very first months of existence, it was seen as evil, Duchampian, confusing non-art. And that's what we sort of have to recover, I think, in order to understand what Warhol's really all about. Along that line, actually, Ray Johnson, who came to prominence, or at least is best known early on as an artist who uses the U.S. mails, how did he and Warhol meet, and why was Johnson important to Warhol? You know, we don't know exactly how Warhol and Johnson met. They met, you know, certainly on the avant-garde art scene, and probably because they were both gay. That certainly must have encouraged their meeting. Warhol helped Johnson, we think, get work in commercial art, so doing amazing book covers for New Directions publishers, doing really nice window dressing for Bonwit Teller and for other department stores, shoe stores as well. It's a funny, funny question. I think it was Ray Johnson's uncompromising personal bohemianism, personal avant-gardism that mattered most to Warhol. It was Ray Johnson as the ultimate weirdo, and specifically the ultimate gay weirdo, that I think really touched Warhol. I think Johnson introduced Warhol to what you could call the downtown scene or the Greenwich Village scene, rather than kind of the mainstream MoMA scene. And that was clearly important for Warhol, being part of this, the real cutting edge in New York, which was, I think, separate from kind of official modernist excellence, which was more of what Johns and Rauschenberg were all about. Though, of course, Judson Church, when they did dance works, et cetera, they were as cutting edge as anyone could be. But culturally, they wore ties and suits. They weren't crazy the way Ray Johnson was. Ray Johnson was, a, you know, till the day he died, you know, mysteriously drowning. He was as eccentric as any human being could possibly get. And I think that that was his crucial influence on Andy Warhol. I was surprised to read how important Charles Demuth was to, to Warhol, or at least Demuth's work. What about Demuth mattered to Warhol? Well, Demuth is kind of one of the very first more or less openly gay artists, and that was crucially important. Demuth had a big influence on Warhol's 1950s work. I don't know that he had really any influence on his 60s work, but it was that that cagey gay content in Warhol's 1950s work that comes from, from Demuth and is uh, there stylistically in his work as well. There's a clear stylistic connection to Demuth, but also to Jean Cocteau and to a bunch of other artists who were as close to being out as could be. And MoMA had a big Demuth show that Warhol would have seen. And the catalog to that more or less admits that Demuth was gay, number one, and that his homosexuality mattered to his art. Didn't say it in, in so many words because you couldn't at the time. But I think anyone who could read the codes and Warhol would have been a, a, a skilled code reader for gay content would have realized that Demuth's gayness was important to his art. And of course, Warhol, till the day he dies, makes art where gayness is almost always central to, to the work that he made. I mean, even the Campbell Soups, which you really can read as leaving behind the explicit gay content of the 50s or then of the later 60s. You know, when you, when you read what specifically gay observers said about it, they all saw the Campbell Soup cans as the ultimate camp object. So they're turn of the set, you know, fin de siècle objects with, with sort of goofy, old-fashioned, hand-scrawled logo on them. That makes them completely camp. And I found a drawing by Warhol where there's a naked man's foot fondling a Campbell soup can, but the Campbell soup can is turned, so all you can read on the label is the word camp. So Warhol was clearly quite 
explicit in his own mind, at least, that there was a connection between Gay Camp and the Campbell soup cans, even if most people, I think, couldn't have read that. For the history nerds, I'm pretty sure the Demoth catalog that Blake referenced is online and available and free to download. We'll have a link to it on manpodcast.com. My guest is Blake Gopnik. We'll be right back after a break. Support comes from Getty. In Recording Artists, a Getty podcast series, art historian Helen Moldsworth explores the lives and work of six women artists. Yoko Ono, Ava Hesse, Betty Saar, Helen Frankenthaler, Alice Neal, and Lee Krasner. Rare interviews from the 60s and 70s, plus new interviews with contemporary artists, help unpack what it meant, and still means, to be a woman making art. Named a binge-worthy art podcast by the New York Times, you can listen now at getty.edu slash recordingartists. This winter, the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents a world premiere work by Sadie Benning. In Pain Thing, their rumination on responses to trauma and collective experience plays out across 63 mixed-media panels. Also at the Wex, LaToya Ruby Frazier presents The Last Cruise, her critically acclaimed examination of the lives of GM workers in Lordstown, Ohio, after their plant was shuttered. And Stanya Khan completes the season with No Go Backs, a world premiere short film that follows two teens as they leave behind an endangered society. The exhibitions are on view through April 26th. For more information, go to wexarts.org. And now back to my conversation with Blake Gopnik. Warhol, as we've noted a bunch of times, loved to play the trickster. One of the places he most recognized a, a trickster fellow in arms was in Eve Klein. And I think that's an element of Klein that American audiences may be less familiar with than other parts of Klein. The, the 2010 Brower Verne Klein retrospective, the Hirshhorn and the Walker, I remember kind of downplaying that element of Klein's project. Why was Andy interested in, in Klein, both his work and, and especially knowing him personally? And how did they become such fast friends that just six months after meeting, Klein is inviting Warhol to his wedding? You know, we know very little about the Klein-Warhol interaction. I discovered even a reference to the, to the meeting, which I don't think had ever been noticed before, is in a particular translation of a particular book about Klein. And it's, it's his wife, uh, Rotroud who remembers the meeting on the steps of the Chelsea Hotel and mentions in passing that they that they already knew each other. And that gets mistranslated in the English translation of her text as that they already knew each other's work. But she explicitly says they knew each other. And there are little tiny clues that show that they must have interacted, but I think the crucial clue is in the work. I think it's almost completely wrong to read Klein as making these blue monochromes as kind of deeply spiritual objects in a kind of, you know, Malevich suprematist mold where they're supposed to speak to the eternal human condition or some such cliche. They were read in Europe and even in America as absurdist Dada statements, you know, making the same blue painting over and over again, selling the same painting at different prices when the paintings look exactly identical, being a very peculiar creature, a self-created creature. Those are all things that Warhol must have just loved about Klein. It was Klein the trickster that I think appealed directly to Warhol and I think was a huge influence. I mean, after all, 
Warhol sells 32 Campbell soup can paintings or tries to sell them, mostly unsuccessfully, that are only different than the flavors that are inscribed on their labels. What could be more Kleinian than that? What could be closer than trying to sell, you know, 32 identical blue monochromes? Everything about Klein, I think, touched Warhol. And Warhol was a huge fan of Duchamp, anything Dada, which he learned about already in college. And I don't think Klein is usually seen as a Dada artist, but I think we should see him as a Dada artist. And I argue that the, the influence went both ways. I mean, in the Chelsea Hotel Manifesto that Klein writes just after meeting Warhol, he says, I've just discovered these new categories of corny and kitsch. Right? He says that just after he would have met Warhol, would have explored Warhol's art, I think, would have possibly heard about or even, I think, possibly seen Warhol's windows at Bonwit Teller, or at least the art that was in those windows. I would have seen Warhol's first pop art. So I think that the, the connection between them is really, is really strong. And it's one of the things I'm proudest of in my book is drawing out those connections, because I think they're really important for understanding Warhol's art. And of course, Warhol goes on pretty soon to do monochromes himself, to attach a monochrome to his work, to lots and lots of his individual pop paintings become diptychs because he puts a monochrome next to them. He said, I think mostly as a joke, that he only did it in order to make them more valuable when he sold them. Well, that's ridiculous because they were harder to sell, not easier to sell. No one has ever found monochromes easy to sell but they are clearly a nod of the hat to Klein and would have been read as that exclusively in the early 60s. Who else was doing monochromes in the early 60s other than Klein? Why was Warhol's breakthrough 1962 show in Los Angeles at Ferris and not in New York? How did, how did New York miss that? <laughs> you know, we always say that New York missed it. I'm not sure they quite missed it. It's rather that, that Ferris got it. Right. I mean, Warhol was still a very minor artist. He had shown even Campbell soup cans in back rooms, in galleries, and he did show his dollar bill painting in a really important group show that, you know, showed Yayo Kusama and other really interesting artists, Robert Morris as well. So he wasn't unknown in New York. New York had cottoned on to Warhol, but it was really the fact that the Campbell soup cans were newly painted and that, that the, the dealers from Ferris were able to come and, and, and pick them up and, and offer him a show in Los Angeles. It wasn't that you know, no one else was offering him a show anywhere in New York, a solo show anywhere. So it was really their good luck that Irving Blum was able to offer him a show in, in Los Angeles in, in uh, July of 1962. And it was an amazing show. I mean, having only those Campbell soup cans was, was a simply you know, mind-blowing, epochal show in the history of American art. Soon thereafter, the death and disaster paintings. You note in the book that there are umpteen death and disaster series origin stories. Which one do you buy? <laughs> I buy the one that says Warhol was a really great artist and didn't need anyone's goddamn help to figure out that he should do death and disasters. Or, or at any rate, you know, Warhol was an equal opportunity I like to say sponge rather than thief. You know, there are always a million ideas floating out there in the art world. And the question is, which ones do you pick up on? Which ones do you realize are interesting? And if people around him were telling him that, you know, there might be something to be done in, you know, really coruscatingly painful pictures of suicides and of uh, airplane crashes and people dying from eating poison tuna, 
He may have picked up on those ideas, but he ran with them and knew that they were the ideas to pick up on. It's not as though other people were doing paintings just like that at the time. So I'm willing to attribute this to Warhol's genius rather than to anyone else. Uh, and some of those stories just don't work. Uh, as with a lot of stories about Warhol's, the genesis of Warhol's art, the dates don't quite work. You know, one of the stories is that Henry Gelzoller, who gave him the idea, by saying, now you've done so much chipper pop art, it's time to do something difficult and, and somber. But at the moment that he's supposed to have said that to Warhol, Warhol hadn't really done any chipper pop art or nothing that had been known. So it's ridiculous to imagine he needed to switch to something serious at that early moment. But yeah, for me, Warhol sponging is one of the most complicated things to get your head around without simply declaring him a plagiarist. And it's not that I'm desperate to save Warhol's you know, uh, moral stature in any way. But I think it is a really interesting conceptual move on his part, the willingness to borrow from other people without simply plagiarizing them. Stealing without plagiarism is itself an interesting conceptual move. And I really honestly believe that that's what Warhol was up to. Yeah, I found myself thinking about Picasso's sponginess throughout um, as a kind of generation or three earlier analog. Yeah, I and mean, the thing is that that Picasso doesn't thematize it in quite the same way because, of course, he transforms his sources. Warhol steals without transforming a lot of the time. Warhol makes the theft evident in a way that Picasso didn't, even though Picasso, of course, people attribute to him the quote that, you know, minor artists borrow and great artists steal. There was always a sense that Picasso was vital in using those thefts, whereas with Warhol, I think a lot of your listeners even are going to say, come on, Gopnik, he was just a plagiarist. He, he puts that on the table in a way that Picasso never quite did. Among the many reasons it's unlikely Picasso ever said exactly that, of course, as early in his career, he was involved in an infamous theft. <laughs> I mean, of, 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 of an actual object. <laughs> yeah, other people are supposed to have said that as well. So it's been attributed to at least three or four different people. A, a great example of Warhol sponging from what might seem an unlikely source is something he noticed in Chris's work and what he took from it. What was that? Well, I mean, Chris has got to be one of the most underrecognized artists of the 1960s. Fascinating woman, important to point out, who went by just a single name. She was of Greek origin, was a superstar for all of, I would say, two years, one year even. In 1961, she did these amazing among other things, newspaper paintings, she got a solo show at the Guggenheim, on the ramp at the Guggenheim, that was, you know, raved about, where she, among other things, simply repeats, for instance, ads from newspapers, just one after another, appropriating them into serial images. I mean, I hate to point this out, but appropriating things from pop culture and using them to make serial images is rather prevalent in Warhol's pop career. I think that Chrissa is a vital and crucial influence on him. There are some Chrissas that look remarkably like Warhol's dollar bill paintings. I can't believe this hasn't been recognized until now, but of course, Chrissa has been completely ignored, partly because she went on to do, I think, much less interesting work. She became famous, as many people did in the 60s, for working in neon, and our interest in neon art is much more modest than it was in those in that moment in the 60s where that was considered a really major art form. So she went from using more traditional media to using neon. And the sort of techiness of that made people lose interest in her work. But for a few years in the early 60s, she was really doing amazing, amazing, gorgeous work. If you go into the vaults of museums, the Whitney and the, and the Guggenheim have amazing Chris's 
in their vaults that very rarely get revealed. And interestingly, they've often been described as silk screens, but I looked at one with a conservator and we decided that they absolutely were not silk screens. So she did not get to silk screening before Warhol. She may have got to it after him, but the fundamentals of Warhol's work, you know, borrowing from two-dimensional pop culture and repeating it across the surface of an image to generate a larger painting is comes directly from Chris, I think. Chris is hiding in plain sight. I mean, it, 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 she was living at Coenties Slip when Ellsworth Kelly and Jack Youngerman and Agnes Martin were there. Yeah, I've, that's an odd one. Because if there's ever been an artist that deserves a revival, it's her. And yet I haven't noticed any sight of it yet. Yeah, Chris is really prominent in Nancy Prinsenthal's biography, excellent biography of, of Agnes Martin, if listeners want to go uh, read up. The other thing with Chris is that she was a deep eccentric. She also believed in self-presentation as an eccentric artist in a way that Warhol did. I think she and Marisol, another single-name female, were really important for that whole notion that an artist sets about creating themselves as a bohemian eccentric. And that's something particularly important in female artists in the 20th century, more by far, I think, than with male artists. And I think Warhol got that from them. I think it's really important to recognize, I've written an essay about this actually, that Warhol had more time for women artists than almost any other male artist I can think of. He praised them. He said they mattered more than, than men did. You know, he was influenced directly by them. He was friends with them. He was good friends with Marisol. Louise Nevelson was one of the great artists of, of his time, as everyone did at the time. So that connection between Warhol and women artists, but also, for want of a better word, female culture is really important to understanding, I think, his entire career. So in the middle section of the book that deals with the Liz Marilyn Elvis Jackie Flowers period, you note that Ben Sean was an erstwhile idol, your words of Warhol's. Did Ben Sean matter to those particular bodies of work? I guess I'd probably say no, unless you've got some reason you think it might, which I'd love you to share with me. I thought the way in the book you set it up was that Warhol admired the way Ben Sean made artwork out of images that were accessible and identifiable to anyone within the viewing public. And that maybe in the selection of superstars, Hollywood superstars, that maybe he was following Sean's interest in the immediately recognizable and accessible. Yeah, I think that's right. In the sense that Sean was, if not literally a WP artist, I can't remember if he was, he was certainly on the WPA left. And that I think was important to Warhol. Warhol was much more of a left-wing figure than people realize in a kind of small L left sense. So I think appealing to a large audience in the way Sean had done mattered to Warhol. So even when Warhol gives up on the Bauhaus notion that commercial art and fine art should be one and the same thing, the spirit behind that, the democratic, even socialist spirit behind that continues, I think. He wants fine art to speak to everyone. It's not that he wants fine art to become commercial art. I think the distinction matters very, very, very much to Warhol throughout. He always wants to be a fine artist, but he wants to be a fine artist the way a WPA artist might have been a fine artist. That is, to make fine art that could at least speak to a large audience, partly by virtue of talking to that audience about things it cares about. Now, there's a conceptualist side 
uh, not side, uh, <laughs> what's, what's bigger than a side, uh, the heart of Warhol's work is conceptualist, and that ain't going to be easy for your average viewer, but there's also something for the average viewer to get from just seeing his weird, altered, incorrect images of Marilyn and other features of pop culture. So I think that both things survive. So yeah, I think that kind of left-wing aspect of Ben Sean is very important to Warhol, even though Warhol hides it. He doesn't wear his left-wing radicalism on his sleeve the way Ben Sean did. I mean, Ben Sean, of course, gets blackballed during the McCarthy era. And in fact, a lot of Warhol's clients, or several of them say, the reason we hired Warhol, this is in the 1950s, when Warhol's style is closely modeled on Ben Sean's, the reason we hired Warhol is because he was cheaper than Sean and didn't come with the taint of left-wing politics. So we could get Sean on the cheap and more safely by, than by using Sean himself. I'm mostly skipping over factory and film, except to note that you populate the book with a cast of seemingly thousands of people Warhol met and knew and relied upon and so on. Is that, in your mind, just straightforward documentation of what happened? Or were you also kind of, as an author, leaning on it as a bit of a metaphor? I'll tell you, the problem with writing about Warhol is that he knew so many people that it creates infinite wormholes for you to go down. And you know, as a researcher, that there's nothing more fun than going down a wormhole, but also nothing more dangerous for your readers. So I actually resisted giving potted biographies of every single figure, whereas a lot of Warhol biographers do go down those wormholes. I think the complaint is going to be from deep, you know, died in the World War Holian fanatics that I don't give a potted biography of every single person he came across. I tried to, re to reserve my potted biographies for figures that I thought were kind of central to him. But certainly the way in which he surrounded himself with, with other figures matters. I like to think of them as a frame, almost in the literal sense of a kind of curlicue golden surround for the central work in Warhol's art, which is himself. I think of those other figures as kind of on the margins, creating a setting within which Warhol makes sense as a work of art. And I do like to use the metaphor of the frame for that. What, what metaphor were you imagining them being a, a metaphor of? The broad range of sources on which he drew, and indeed maybe a little bit the, the New York of the 50s and 60s that was absorbing people and people all over from all over the world as rapidly and intensely as, as it did and how Warhol found something in so much of that, kind of like the factory itself was such a gathering place. Although the thing that I say, and it's not the kindest thing I've ever said, I guess, although God knows I've said some unkind things about artists and other cultural figures, you know, for me, those figures were in a almost concrete sense Warhol's art supplies. So I'm not sure that they were influences on him so much as tools that he could use. I really see him as fairly outside of those circles that gathered to him at the factory, but fascinated by them as, you know, the way any good artist would be fascinated by something as unusual as the 60s counterculture. After all, he didn't create 60s counterculture, not by a long shot, but he realized there was something interesting in it. But he rarely ever actually engages in it in any normal sense. That is, there's very little of Warhol's creation that you say, oh, that's that 60s stuff, you know, kind of peace sign, kind of Peter Max stuff. Warhol, I think a lot of the time, manages to not seem dated, manages to survive his moment. 
And even when he's making art about that moment, like Chelsea Girls, it's so complex as art, so difficult as art, that it doesn't seem to fit tidily into the pigeonholes of 60s counterculture. I had not known that the 15 Minutes of Fame quote first surfaced in the catalog for a Swedish museum publication and in relation to a show that then of Warhol's work that then traveled in Europe. Of course, he may not have said it. it, it it's just there in the catalog. Is, is there any reason to believe it was something he might have said that had specific relevance to or meant something specific about his arrival in Europe? Well, of course, it stands for the whole notion of American celebrity culture, and it's hard to think of a culture that was further from 1960s Swedish socialism than American celebrity culture. So it was a kind of synecdoche for the culture that Warhol's art represented for a Swedish curator, I think. The history of that quote is phenomenally complicated. I've gone into it in vast detail on my Warholiana.com website, as you know, and it's really hard to sort out. It is attributed to Warhol in very minor ways before he gets to that Swedish show, before the, the Moderna Musée show gets its catalog, where the 15 Minutes of Fame line is first printed. But there are various other people who claim it earlier. There are various hints of it coming from Warhol's mouth or not coming from Warhol's mouth before 1968. But the crucial thing for me is that it's not that interesting a goddamn quote. I don't understand why it's so famous. It's not even fully parsable. There are a bunch of different readings of it. Like, is it that fame is fleeting or is it that everyone will get fame? Both of those readings are used to make sense of that quote from Warhol. But somehow or other, it's one of those snowballs that once it started rolling, there was no there was no stopping it, even though it's not an interesting snowball and it's a kind of a snowball I wish would melt. And again, I tried to demolish that, but there's no way. That cliche is so firmly ensconced that every morning, you know, I obviously have a Google alert on Warhol and every day there's at least one reference to, as Warhol said, in the future, everyone will be world famous for 15 minutes. And I want to scream and say, as Warhol never said, quite possibly. As we get toward and into the 1970s, I had not realized uh, the importance you ascribed to portraits Warhol made for, for the Damon Hills, one of a Damon Hill and one I think of Jermaine McAgee. What made them important? What made them a kind of, eh, I don't know if pivot is the word, but a kind of transitional work? Well, I think it's not so much the Demonials, although they were very, very important patrons of Warhol's. I mean, really encouraged some of his most interesting art. They also introduced Warhol to his, I don't know what you'd call him, best friend, amanuensis, worst enemy, and business manager, Frederick Hughes, who was kind of raised up by the Demonials. Frederick Hughes was this dandy who put on unbelievable aristocratic airs, even though his father worked as a salesman for a dinette company. But he came from Texas and came with the imprimatur of the Demonials, the you know filthy rich oil industry tycoons. And they sponsored some really interesting work by Warhol, including an unfinished film of sunsets that he was going to do for them, that he did some work on for them. In a way, the portraits that they commissioned are the least interesting work because they're just more of those kind of, I think, interestingly empty portraits that Warhol did. I think anyone who claims that Warhol's portraits reveal the inner soul of the sitter is, is, is going to die of clicheism. But what matters is that they made him realize that there was money in it. I mean, the reason those, those 
portraits happened is because Warhol's friend Fred Hughes, Warhol's staff member Fred Hughes, realized that Warhol was desperate for money just after being shot. So he got the Dominiles to commission these portraits. And that started the cash cow of Warhol's celebrity and society portraits that are what supported him and interview and everything he did right through the 70s and 80s. I mean, without the portraits, Warhol would have been a starving artist. With them, he was a filthy rich artist. For me, there are three major late bodies of work, Mao, the piss paintings, and camouflage. Before turning to them, I want to quickly address the time capsules, which I imagine were something of research gold for you. Uh, research gold and research shit, if I'm allowed to use such language in a podcast. They were, and Warhol wanted them to be that. I'm absolutely convinced that when he took to stowing his, to say, miscellaneous papers, which of course is what archivists call them, but there are just every possible scrap of paper in his life, really, from the 50s onward, that he then repackaged in these in these cardboard boxes. They're just normal cardboard boxes, which he somewhat jokingly called time capsules and declared works of art. When he stowed all of his ticket stubs and his bank statements and, you know, random napkins that he stole from airplanes, when he put all that into these 610 boxes and declared them a work of art, I think he had me in mind and he wanted to mess with me. His goal was to ruin my life and to ruin the life of every possible person like me. Again, it's the effort is to destabilize reality, to confound normal, stable definitions of history and biography and what the world is like. And they do it incredibly efficiently. You can go through the time capsules, and God knows I've gone through tens of thousands of documents from the time capsules, but they don't really help you form a stable image of Warhol. I mean, individual documents are incredibly revelatory. But overall, this is just as absurd a work of art, a conceptual work of art as you could get. It's a data project, right? The notion that you could record everything about yourself seems to me completely straightforward data and hugely successful. Are they in any way a, a smirk at Rauschenberg? Well, they are <laughs> kind of ultimate combine, right? They are definitely, I mean, my view on Rauschenberg is that he makes his combines too arty. There's too much deliberate transform transformation. I had not thought of them as being Rauschenbergian, but I think they absolutely are. They're the Rauschenberg of the 50s that gets lost in Rauschenberg's latest later art, I think. So in a way, they're Rauschenberg as Rauschenberg should have been in the 70s and 80s. They're Warhol making the kind of ideal Rauschenbergian combine, a simple agglomeration of objects with no goal behind them at all. They remind me of the Data abstractions, where Hans Arp simply throws, pretends at least, says that he throws uh, little colored squares of paper into the air and lets them land however they will. And this is how a great abstraction should really be made. Well, Warhol is kind of throwing every single work of paper in his entire life into the air and letting them settle out into these crazy things called time capsules. It's worth pointing out that the time capsules, the 610 boxes that make up the time capsules, are just a small part of the total Warhol archive. There are lots and lots of boxes of archival material that are not time capsules, that are there in the Warhol archive that survived his death without ever being declared time capsules. So it's a mistake to think that if you go to the Warhol archives, all you have to do is go through 610 time capsules. My guess is you have to go through at least another 
oh, I don't know, 300, 400, 500 boxes full of miscellaneous crap as well. ARP came up with that idea around World War One, and I guess Andy starts the time capsules late, maybe even just after the Vietnam, the American Vietnam Project. So there's sort of another analogy there. Mao and the camouflage paintings. Mao is a clever, smart, fascinating riff on portraiture. And the camouflage paintings are in some ways a riff on self-portraiture. Are they related in that way or is that a flawed construct? No, I think they're related that way. Of course, they also are both about great American traditions and abstraction, right? The Mao's are very much about abstract expressionism because Warhol does what I think are sort of absurd pseudo brushstrokes all over a lot of them, right? They are, the brushstrokes are often added later. Sometimes they're added before he puts down the silkscreen. Sometimes they're added after he puts down the silkscreen. But I think all of the brushiness in them that's praised so highly by connoisseurs and collectors, I think that's all tongue in cheek. Just the, the way that the camouflage patterns that he, he comes up with later in the 70s are really references to hard edge abstraction as much as anything, and to abstraction in general, right? And to the very notion of making a picture. I mean, the most interesting things about the camouflage paintings is that camouflage is supposed to not be seen. And here he's using a pattern that's supposed to hide things to do the most revealing thing there is, namely show you a pictorial surface. So that, I mean, they're just phenomenally sophisticated conceptual works, in my opinion. They also look damn good, which is the great things about, thing about Warhol's conceptualism, is that it always pays visual dividends as well, in a way that can't always be said of, you know, of Marcel Duchamp. Warhol makes visually complicated objects at the same time as they are, I think, more importantly, conceptually complicated. The Piss paintings have always fascinated me because they seem an unusually, at least for Warhol, direct nod to an art historical standard, namely the the paintings of the reclining nude paintings featuring Danai and Zeus coming to Danai as... In a golden shower, yes. Right. And then, of course, in Warhol's painting, The Surface is Gold. Is there any reason to believe that made sense for him or was a source for him? Because it doesn't seem like it maybe would have been at any other point in his career. <laughs> well, I mean, Warhol, one of the surprising things is how well he knew old master art, partly because Balcom Green, his teacher in college, gave him, I think, a really good overall background in art history. I bought a copy of Warhol's art history textbook. That is not his copy, but another copy. And it's a phenomenally sophisticated text. So you could learn a hell of a lot by reading that one book, not to mention going to shows at the Carnegie Institute. It's in, at its art museum. So he had a, just a phenomenally good knowledge of art. So I wouldn't put it past him to have that reference. But of course, the stronger reference and the less interesting one by far is to abstract expressionism, right? Jackson Pollock dripping paint on a horizontal surface is probably, you know, is obviously pretty close to where all dripping pee from a brush, shall we say, onto, his, onto those surfaces. That's actually, in a way, one of the less interesting aspects of him, I think, or it's inevitable. The gay content is very important as well because he actually got guys from the baths to come and, and pee on, on the, the pictures. He did it first, but then he discovered it was easier and better just for him and his assistant, Ronnie Coutron, to do the peeing themselves. And of course, there's also the Klein reference of human action on the canvas of, you know, just as Klein had physical 
bodies on the canvas as a way of applying the expressionist mark, if you will. There's, there's, there's that here too. And the fire too. I mean, you know, there's clearly the notion of, of process-based art. I mean, the other thing about Warhol that's really important is to realize how much he was tied into the absolute avant-garde of any moment that he lived through. So, of course, process-based painting was the hot concept in painting at that moment. After Warhol helped declare painting dead, one way out of the dead end of painting was through process-based work, and there couldn't be anything more process-based than, than peeing on those paintings. So they really tie into lots and lots of different notions, pattern and decoration as well, right? What could be a more decorative pattern than Warhol's piss paintings? I prefer to call them piss paintings because that's what they are. Oxidation is this euphemism that got attached to them later. He always called them piss paintings, so I'm I'm willing to to go with that. It's also important to remember that his first pa piss paintings almost certainly date to his very first moments in art. You know, 1962 probably, maybe even earlier than that. So he was making piss paintings already that early, and then he revisits them. And of course, in the early 60s, they were necessarily a direct reference to Abex, but in a much crueler way. There was no, didn't take much courage to go after Jackson Pollock, you know, in the, in the late seventies, but going after Jackson Pollock in the early sixties was a, was a bolder move. Blake Gopnik, thank you. You're welcome. This has been just a total treat. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.